0: work in, in so mighty, such mighty ways. It is right to give him praise, and it's right to thank him. That man was on a ventilator, life support, for months. Um, many did not think he would ever leave the hospital, and uh, so, Neil, if you're out there, know we've been praying for you. We continue to pray for you, um, and I praise the Lord that he's home, and uh, Pray that he would continue his rehab and get stronger and stronger. And I look forward to the day that he might be able to worship with us again in person. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, our prayer today is one of praise. We turn our hearts and minds to you and say thank you. We thank you for your answer to prayers. We will consider that very topic at the end of our time together here in the sermon time. Thank you that you see fit to make yourself known in so many wondrous ways. We praise you for John being able to be here with us today. We pray for Neil that he would continue to grow strong. We pray for all those who even now, the names and faces are, are flooding the minds of everyone in this room and online, of those that they've been praying for. Father, may we continue to rejoice in seeing you in so many mighty and wonderful ways. May you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've already sung about God's praise. We've already been uh, kind of focused on this for a while. We're going to be looking at the glory of God seen through Christ's church. So let me emphasize from the very beginning that although we are here as Merrimack Valley Baptist Church, we are a subdivision of the church, right? We're just one little, uh, in, uh, you know, significant. We're all significant, right? We're one little part of this of this church that is uh, the head of our church is Jesus Christ. And so as we go into the next series of of sermons, today we're focusing on this idea of the glory of God seen through his church. This is big picture church that we're talking about. This is the look at church from God's perspective in a sense. God saying, I'm God. You're not. Church is my thing, not yours. And God has called us to be part of it. And then in subsequent sermons in the next few weeks, we're going to go into a little bit more of our side of church. And, uh, and I'll explain that next week. But as we think about this idea of of uh, the, the glory of God seen through Christ's church, I want to I ask you, uh, how many of you read this week's uh, Family Happenings? This is a test. We'll see if any of you. Okay, there's a few of you that passed. There's some of you that that are you know, I don't fail anybody. So, uh, you, know, you, you know, you need some, uh, you need a little emphasis. Get the scene, get the uh, family happenings, read through it. It doesn't just keep you up to date on what's going on, although it does, but it, in this particular family happenings, uh, God just moved in my heart to maybe uh, draw our attention to the small, to our smallness. I can't say insignificant because God loves us, so we're not insignificant, but we are small. And I ask you to remember a time in your life, or maybe this is something that will be future for you, but you need to picture yourself outside on a dark night where there's no streetlights and no, no anything. It's just a star, it's a light from the stars and the moon, and you're out there, and you see the expanse of creation. You see the expanse of the planets and stars and moon, and you're just, and it's just mesmerizing. As you stand there, and I encourage you to go through this this practice at some point in time, and experience the smallness that you feel when you are comparing yourself to the vastness of God's creation, knowing that the furthest star that you can see, God transcends it. God is is outside of His creation. He is transcendent in a miraculous, glorious way. But in it just as a magnificent and miraculous and glorious way, He is also imminent. He is close at hand. He is here in this moment. So as we, as we start today, I really would encourage you. You know, they say start small and work your way up. No, just start small and stay there for a while. And let's consider this question. Has the world been turned upside down? And if I were to say this in the vernacular... Has the world been turned upside down or what? We live in a crazy world, don't we? We live in a world where all kinds of things are going on. And so let me take you to a text of Scripture. It's in Isaiah uh, and Isaiah, as he's going through chapter 5, he's pronouncing woe after woe after woe. And, and there's coming wrath and anger of the Lord that is pronounced as a result of these woes. And, and you never want a woe that is going to end up on your lap, right? You just, that's not what you're after. But here he says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And I, I just want to focus on that first part. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Think about this. Has the world turned upside down? Well, is good seen as evil and evil as good? Yes. All around us. And so since that answer is yes to the second question, the answer to this first question is yes as well. The world is turned upside down. It is crazy what is going on in our world. When was the world turned upside down? You might be thinking to yourself, well, I remember the time when it used to be like this, and now it's not like this anymore. And so I would say at that event, that's when the world turned upside down. For some, it was the 1960s, right? For some, it was the 70s, 80s, 90s. I'm a child of the 80s, so I thought everything was in perfect alignment, Just give me their music. Just give me all this. No. And then what happened? And then right in the middle of 1980s, I got saved. And I realized something. The world wasn't upside down in the sense that I thought it was. It was upside down in a different sense. So when was the world turned upside down in reality? When our father Adam sinned against God. Think about it. Creation God goes through his six days of creation. On the seventh day, he calls it all good. He calls it good, and he says, this is, this is a pattern, right? He says he's, so, he's saying, man is good, woman is good, creation is good, and, and then somewhere along the way in the garden, the man and the woman, they come together, and we're told that by, this, by the sin of one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, Adam sinned, and we are his children. That's why I refer to him here as our father. His sin nature has been handed down from generation to generation to generation. And it is still being handed down to this day. And we live in an upside-down world because God created his world as good. And now we know it's upside-down because evil is here and sin is here. We have lived in an upside-down world since the day we were born. And for some of us, that's not been too long, as I see a little one walk out the door in his dad's arms, right? Uh, And as uh, as you think, for some of us, it's been a long time, and I won't point you out. It's been a long time. I've been around long enough. We live in an upside-down world. There's something I want us to realize this morning, and that is, that those who live in this upside-down world think they are right-side up. Now, I'm talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about those who who do not understand the things of God and uh, they haven't uh, made a practice of engaging in his word to understand what is right-side up and what is upside down. And so I'm asking you to realize that when you step out these doors and you walk into uh, what we call the world, right, Uh, it's a world that thinks they're right-side up. Look at Acts 17 with me for just a few moments. This is a time where, where Paul was engaged in, in his planting of churches, and he was going through his, one of his missionary journeys, and he's telling people all about Jesus. And, and we'll talk a little bit more Paul, about Paul in a little bit. But it says, Now when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, And for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Isn't it amazing that the message hasn't changed? We stand here today as members of Merrimack Valley Baptist Church, the redeemed of God, right? Part of that redeemed Uh, the redeemed of all time and of all age since the time the church was, was planted, right? We stand here and we invite you. If you do not know Christ, we're saying this Christ whom we are preaching is the Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer, the one you need to turn your world right side up. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil. Let me go back there. I read that wrong. First service too. But the Jews were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. They sought to bring Paul and Silas and others out to the people, but they did not find them uh, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out. Now, notice, these are the words of people who are, who are in opposition to the things of God, who are in opposition to the things of Paul. They cry out, those who, uh, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Paul and those that were traveling with him had been going from place to place preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everywhere the gospel went, it caused people, some people to come to faith. It's caused many people to rebel towards the, the, what God was doing and to renounce Christ and to seek Paul's death. It says, they have turned the world upside down and have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contradictory to the, de- to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus and they troubled the crowd with the rulers of the city uh, and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. That's that saying there that the, the, the rulers of the city and, and the crowd, they were troubled by what was going on. These people were bringing this news of this, what is going on? What do, what do you mean The people are turning the world upside down? Well, there's some lessons we can learn from these, this particular passage. Those who believe in the, that the world is upright, this is I'm saying this is the world. This is the flesh. This is the things that that are contrary to God. These are the people that think everything in this world is good and right. Those who believe the world is upright are not content to to let others believe differently. I'm asking you to enter into your own life experience or maybe the life experience of others, but I'm hoping this is part of your life experience. Because as, a, as the redeemed of God, we are called to live in such a way where a light on a hill is not easily hid, right? You can't hide a light at night. And so as, as we are light, the light of Christ, we're the light, we have the light of the gospel in our lives, people ought to be noticing. And, and so people who think this world is, is right side up in, in error, they're not content to let others believe differently. How often are you judged for your faith in God? How often are you ridiculed or made fun of because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Some of you can say openly, I, it happens on a regular basis. Others may be like, I think I'm privately, I think quietly people are talking about me behind my back because I don't participate in the things that they do. I don't speak the way they speak. And, 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 and so we, are, we, we might know this is true. They're not content to let others believe differently. We also know that they will go to great measures to defend their perspective of the world. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just bring up one aspect of our world today. It's not the only one. And by bringing it up, I, I realize that I'm, I may distract from, from the purposes of things. But I'm just going to mention for a moment the LGBTQ plus community and say that we are called to love every single one of them because they are created in the image of God, just as we're called to live and love everyone in this world because they are created in the image of God. But we do not need to bow to their demands that we affirm their livelihood, their choice of living. Not livelihood, that, that, that's the right, the right thing. I'm sure they have great jobs and we can affirm that. We, we should not affirm their choice to violate the standards by which God's word says we are called to live. And so we live in a world today where it's not okay to say, you, we could not say, okay, LGBTQ plus community, you live this way and we'll live this way. Well, first of all, I think that would be a demonstration of lack of love if we were to say that. No, you could just go ahead and live that way because we know it's in violation of God's standard. But let's say we could do that without violating things. And you go, they would not be content with that. We are being commanded to affirm their, their lifestyle, their sexual preference, their gender identity. Listen, folks. Their world is turned upside down. They know no different. They need Christ. And we are the church. And we have the gospel. And we are the only ones that are going to be able to explain to them what's right side up looks like. But if we're too busy judging them, condemning them, avoiding them, how are they ever going to know the gospel of Jesus Christ? So they call for us to affirm them, and we can't, and that's not good enough. There are those within that community, I'm not saying it's the entire community, there are those within the community that would say, you must affirm us. You must affirm what violates the word of God And we can't do that. We can't. We should not. But let me say once again, nowhere does anyone have any right whatsoever to treat those people, to treat any person as if the grace of God cannot extend to them as it is extended to you and me. So those who believe the world is, is right side up, right? That It's upright. They're not content to let that others, that others believe differently. They want you to believe like they believe. And they will go to great measures to make sure that you believe the way they believe. And, but we have to understand that they are trapped in their upside down world perspective. And it's not just that community. I'm broadening out and saying, listen, there's been names and terms for this kind of thinking, uh, right? Uh, throughout throughout the, the history. You can call it anything you want. Postmodernism, modernism all kinds of things that's been called. People are trapped in their upside-down perspective of the world. But there is good news for these trapped individuals, and that is God has a plan to set things right, to set things right side up again. And So let's walk through this plan of God with me, all right? I, I, I'm leading up to a focus upon the church, so bear with me because we're talking about the glory of God seen through the church. But really, we have to understand a few things before we get there. God's plan to set things right. One, God sent his son Jesus into the world. The God became man, right? God became man. The God-man was birthed into this world, and he lived a sinless life, right? And then we see Jesus preached the gospel, the good news that forgiveness of sins is found only in him, do you find it strange that I say that Jesus preached the gospel? I, I, it's one of those things where you're reading through and you're like, oh, wait, wait a minute, the Bible says that. Jesus preached the gospel. It wasn't just Paul, Peter, all these other uh, disciples. No, it, Jesus preached the gospel. How do you think the disciples <laughs> came to faith? He told them about who he was and that forgiveness of sins is found only in him. You want to experience the, the, uh, the pressure of the world to say, no, you're upside down? When we know we're right side up, tell them that there's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to, to being in the presence of God, and that's through His Son. And people will be like, whoa, 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 that's a little too narrow, don't you think? I think I'm a good person. I've never murdered. I've never stolen anything significant. I've, you know, They'll come up with all these excuses and they'll all come up with these reasons. They're like, no, 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 no. There is only one way to God the Father, and it's through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again in the fulfillment of the Scripture. Scripture wasn't silent about God's plan. It was planned from eternity past. And as soon as creation came into being, it was in the works. And God's plan has never been plan B. It's always been plan A. And plan A was that Jesus is going to die for your sins and for mine. That's that's the plan. And to make sure that people knew he was dead, he, he stayed in that grave three days. He rose on the third day. In fulfillment of the Scriptures, Jesus said He was going to resurrect. Jesus commissioned His followers to preach the gospel until He returned, right? We talk about the Great Commission. We're going to look at it a little bit more here in a minute. But we know that Jesus, as He uh, resurrected and as He stood on the Mount of Olives, just before He ascended, He gave this Great Commission. He gave this commission to His disciples saying, Go make disciples. But what we have to understand about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it converts sinners. That's essential because if you're a believer here today, you believe in the, in the person and the completed work of Jesus Christ, then, then you are a born-again believer. You are someone who has been redeemed You are a sinner saved by grace, but maybe you're here this morning, or maybe you're watching online, and you really just kind of like joining us and seeing me make mistakes or say goofy things or whatever, and make maybe make fun of any preacher that's up here because you really just think this whole Christianity thing is a bunch of malarkey, whatever that means. And I'm telling you, it's not. His gospel converts sinners. Paul's going to say in our text today that he's the chief sinner. I would like to think I could give him a run for his money, but I really never did commit physical adultery, and I, I never committed murder, and I never committed those things that, that uh, David did. You know, Paul, who became Saul, was a persecutor of the church. He talks to him, and it, it grieved him at some level that he was that. But as much as he was grieving his past life of sin, he, he would pause from time to time and just praise God for the amazing grace that he bestowed upon Paul. This persecutor, this murderer. And yet God sent him to be this, his voice into the, into the realm of both Jews and Gentiles. The gospel, God's gospel, converts sinners. And it isn't amazing that converted sinners make up the church. How dare we judge others when we have been those people who did just like they had done. The church is called to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. That's our mission, right? We talk about that. We're supposed to go and make, bring someone to a knowledge of Christ, see them come to faith, and then mature them. Part of that maturing is creating disciples who make disciples disciples. That's what we talk about. We as disciples are to make disciples who have the ability to make disciples. The one is done through the preaching of the gospel. The ones through, They're both done on the power of the gospel. And so I have to pause and, and ask. Listen, my job as the under-shepherd of this church, as one of the under-shepherds of this church, is to challenge the sheep. I didn't go on this rant in the first service, but I'm going to go on it in this one because you don't have a second service or a third service to worry about. Jesus Christ is the great shepherd. Pastors, elders are the under shepherds. We're going to get into a discussion of this later, but can I understand? We are all sheep because, listen, I'm part of this church body. All the other pastors are part of this church body. The deacons are part of the church body. You're part of this church body. We are all sheep, and sheep are what? Stupid dumb, ignorant, wondering, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. That's what sheep do. Sheep are also supposed to be those who are able to lead other sheep, though. And I ask you to consider right now, with all the time, for those of you who have been in the faith for longer than Uh, I'll say longer than a year. Let's just go with that. If you've been in the faith longer than a year, are you able to disciple someone to a saving faith in Jesus Christ? That's not my calling. That's not my gift. No, 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 no. You don't get an out. Are you able to express to someone what God did in your life? Are you able to, listen, I'm not saying you have to have the Romans Road memorized. I'm not saying you have to be this, this, uh, this preacher extraordinaire. I'm just saying, can you tell someone what's taken place in your life, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died in my place so that my sins could be forgiven? And that great love of God for me, He has for you, and we invite you to come to faith in His person and His work. Let me explain to you, first of all, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and there's no good works you can do in this life or in the next life or in the those who believe that there are many lives. You can't do any good work that's going to earn God's favor. You have to come to faith in the good work that God did for you by sending His Son to die in your place on that cross for the payment of sins. Are you able to do that? That's not intended to be a guilt trip. It's the poking or the prodding of a shepherd to a sheep to say it's something you really ought to be doing. Being a disciple is a wonderful thing, but being a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ means that you're seeking to make disciples of others. And not leaving that work up to somebody else. Because God has saved you through his grace. And he has created good works that for you to do after your point of salvation. After you've come to faith in Christ. You are, we are his workmanship. And he's created these good works for us to do. And I want to encourage you, fellow sheep. Let's be diligent to be doing what it is we're called to do. Which is to make disciples who can make disciples. The gospel will be preached to all nations before the end comes. There is an end coming. We we believe in the, in the, uh, the crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, and returning Jesus Christ. He's coming again. And when he returns, that's the end in one sense. Why? Because all things are now right side up. There is no more upside down. It has been all put in its right place, in its right way. And that is the glory of the plan of God. So God's plan will be accomplished through God's power. Now we're going to transition. We're going to focus on this power for our time remaining here today. And, and I, I hope you've seen the power of God. We know there's a power of God unto salvation, right? That's the gospel. We know there's the power of God that redeems sinners. We know there, there's, God's power is revealed in many ways. So we're going to talk about God's power on display in the book of Ephesians. If I could keep you here for five hours, I would not do justice to preaching through the whole book of Ephesians. But I'm telling you, go home today and and immerse yourself in the book of Ephesians. In this book, we see that the power of God is on display through our knowledge of His work. This is the first way we see the power of God uh, on display. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... And your love for all the saints do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Are you praying that way for each other? Right? Remembering these things, right? Paul's doing it. He says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is kind of leading us into this idea this idea that the power of God is on display through our knowledge of his work. How do we know what we know? We talked about that in our first John study. How do we know what we know? It's because God has given us the ability through the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know the knowledge of him. He says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know. God is not silent about his plan. He's not silent about his purposes for the church He's saying, no, I've given it to you. And and part of his power is revealed in the fact that we know. Because aside from the power of God, we would not know. That you may know what is what? The hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. And the one that we're going to focus on. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. Remember, you're standing in the night sky with a gazillion stars and maybe the moon and and, and maybe a, an asteroid or two and, and or a comet and you're and you're and you're standing there and you're feeling infinitesimally small what ought to blow your mind is the fact that the exceeding greatness of his power was exercised towards us who believe God is at work. He's always at work in the lives of His children. So we we can see His glory by very knowledge that we can say that. But we also see uh, the power of God on display through Jesus' resurrection and ascension. This is jumping right to the gospel. We've already touched on it. We'll move a little quicker through here. But it says, according to the working of His mighty power. He's saying, listen, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe the church according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. God was was displaying his power through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension. He will demonstrate his power. It's not on a slide. He will demonstrate his power again in his return. He says that he, he is, Jesus has, has taken his place in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Right? We see that Jesus has this name above all names. He has been placed in this position above all principalities and powers, which leads us to the third way we see God displayed. And and that, oh, I I should have just jumped there. But it says the power of God is on display through the supremacy of Christ. Is Christ supreme? Yes. Why? Because God made him so. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Trinitary. To the Trinity, right? We believe in a trinitarian God. We believe that He uh, He does this. But as we talk about the supremacy of Christ, we can look at that scripture verse that says that He is above all principalities and power. But we can also look to uh, this portion in verse twenty-two. It says, "And He, speaking of God the Father, put all things under His, speaking of Jesus' feet, and He gave Jesus to be head over all things." That's not where the text stops. It says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Standing in guy, sky, infinitesimally small. God is God. We are not. But God gave the church Jesus Christ. How are we supposed to comprehend this? Well, in one sense, we never will fully comprehend all the things of God, but we can comprehend this. He loves us. And he says that he gave Jesus to be head over all things to the church. Jesus Christ in his supremacy is over all things, and he's over all churches of all nations and all tongues, but he's certainly over this church. Because he says the church, which is his body, which calls to mind uh, other texts that Paul has written about the body of Christ and Christ is the head. We are the body. I might just be a bent pinky, right? That's okay, it's part of the body. I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a bent pinky. Maybe you're a hand, maybe you're a foot, maybe you're a mouthpiece, maybe you're the heart, maybe you're the lungs. The breath in my life, it's yours. We just sang this. Notice what it says. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is using terminology where he's trying to express the inexpressible. And we're going to talk about this more in a little bit. Look at He wants us. He's praying for us. This is all in the context of the prayer for, for the Ephesians, but we can, we can understand the same is true for us. He's saying, I'm praying through the, through the verses of, um, as we read earlier, 13, uh, chapter 3, th- verses 14 through 21. That's a prayer. And as we go through this text, we see that God's power is displayed through the whole book. But well, the power of God is in display through our redemption, and, and this is where we're getting a little closer, right? Remember, I'm saying we're we're talking about the glory of God is seen through the church. Remember, the church is the redeemed. The redeemed are those sinners who are no longer sinners, uh, who are destined to hell, but sinners saved by grace. We have been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. We're not our own. We have been. Christ has purchased us with His blood. The power of God is on display through our very redemption. He says in chapter two, verse three, uh, verse one, and you. He made alive. Isn't that amazing? He made us alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Only God does that. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We're talking about the fact that God's power is on display. And it, it, and it, what it professes is what is upside, what is right side up. But notice this. There is another power out there that's also on display that is deceiving people and causing them to not understand their upside-down position. It says here that in which you once walked. We walked in our trespasses and sins. We're no better than anyone else. We did that stuff. According to the prince of the power there, that's Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Notice this among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We are just like them. So God is, is His power is on display through our redemption because there's no other reason for us to be redeemed. The fact that we are... able to gather together and enter into worship, genuine worship that pleases God and edifies each one another is the very fact that we're redeemed. But notice this, the power of God is on display through calling the sinful to serve. Now we're getting into a little bit more of what church life is all about. All right. Are you, are you a servant within the body of Christ? Are you loving one another? Are you esteeming others better than yourself? Are you putting yourself in that position of serving others rather than serving yourself? As we look in Ephesians 3 starting in verse 1, it says, "For this reason I, Paul, Paul is saying, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. He know what it's like to be he knows what it's like to be a servant. He's saying, "Listen, I'm a prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace of God which was given to me for you" How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. He says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Let's just pause for a second. Sinners who have been redeemed, right? That's what the church is made up of. The the scandalous event that took place in the first century was that God did not just save Jewish people. He saved Gentiles too. Gentiles were looked as as the low of the low. They were considered dogs to the Jews. They were not. They were not going to eat They were never going to eat at the same table. They were never going to have intermarriage that glorified God. And their mind, this was never going to happen. But God, and it's not in our text, but Jesus Christ broke down the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, and he formed a new people, and he called that people the church. And that's what we are. So we don't have Jews and Gentiles. We don't make that distinction as much today. Yeah, sure, it's out there. But listen, we are we are people coming from all different walks of life and different beliefs and different backgrounds. And, and if we were to know each other in our previous lives prior to Christ, we'd probably be an, have animosity towards one another. But the fact is that we come to worship and what transcends all the things of this world is our salvation in Christ. And so sinners who are redeemed love other sinners who are redeemed. And it is a beautiful thing because there's no wall of separation between us, the ground is level at the cross. We embrace those who, prior to this time, we would have hated. It says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. Remember, this is the mystery. This is the mystery that was that was made known, and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. God's power was working in the life of Paul to serve those that prior, in his prior life, he disdained. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this is Paul's perspective on himself. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given expanse of stars in heaven and God's creation, infinitesimal me and you. And Paul is floored that out of the infinitesimals me and you, he calls himself the least of all of them. And he says, I am overwhelmed by the reality that this grace was given to me. I hope you never overcome the grace of God that was bestowed upon you when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You don't deserve it, neither do I. It's God's grace. It's a gift. It's unmerited favor. We don't do anything to earn it. And Paul is overwhelmed by this grace. He says that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. I don't have it highlighted. I don't believe I have it highlighted. I don't. The manifold wisdom of God is being made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Heavenly angels peer down and they're in amazement at what's going on in this thing called the church and this grace that God has bestowed upon mankind. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This has been God's purpose, to glorify himself through a redeemed people in whom we have boldness. And because of our redemption, we have boldness and access. We can walk right into the presence of God with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. Because Paul was a servant and God manifests himself in that way. Manifested his power in that way. So God's power is on display throughout the whole book. The power of God is on display through his church. And this is where, actually, we're almost done. All right? I've been leading up to this. The power of God is, in, is on display through his church. When you get to Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, it's that, one of the doxologies I read a few weeks ago. As I read them in, 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 uh, in, in uh, just right into order, just reading right through four or five or six of them, I read through And one, one person came out to me like, thank you for reading Ephesians 3.20. It's, it's that verse that ministers me on a regular basis. Well, let it minister to you now. Because look what Paul says. Captivated by this grace of God, knowing how awesome this mystery is that Gentiles and Jews are coming together as one people, he says, now to him, Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We're going to walk through this. We'll do it quickly. Now, to him is able to do something. This this is Paul. We're saying Paul is recognizing who God is. He's like, listen, this is about God. God, you're able to do something. What is God able to do? Well, if you remove all the adjectives and adverbs and different things in there, he's basically saying that he is able to do all that we ask or think. That's good news, isn't it? We pull into a busy mall or the, the outlets and we say, Lord, give me a parking space. That's not a bad prayer. I'm not condemning that prayer. All right, pray for the parking space. It's all right. God's able to provide a parking space. that's kinda not so powerful right exactly because God is able to do more than that. When you think about what he's saying here, there's so much more that he that he's conveying he He piles on these these adverbs and these adjectives, and he says he says this he says to him who is able to do all that we ask or think according to the power that work within us. So he's able to do all of it. But he's not just able to do all of it. And I love this. I I highlighted this so you can walk through it. This is out of uh, one of the commentaries I read. It just summarizes it. God is said to be able to do whatever believers ask in prayer. He is able to do what they might fail to ask, but what they can think about, right? So they can think beyond what they would ask. He is able to do all they ask or think. He is able to do above all they ask or think. He is able to do abundantly above all that they ask or think. He is able to do abundantly above all uh, they ask or think. Uh, I, I think I skipped that one. He is able to do infinitely more. Abundantly above all they ask or think. What is Paul trying to convey here? I don't have the words to express the awesome power of God at work in your life. Paul recognized his infinitesimal self in relation to all the others and how wicked he was prior to salvation. But after salvation, he's saying, listen, I serve a great God. And God is able to answer prayers. So pray for that parking space. But I'll tell you this pray for so much more pray according to his will we've already talked about that but pray for so much more when i was studying for this and i came to this understanding and i was just it just overwhelmed me and i just stopped right there and i prayed for my family as you are probably thinking even right now i know people who need to get saved I know people who need to know the love of God in such a way that it changes their life. I know people that are, that they are living in this upside-down world, and they say they're happy when they're destined for hell. God, save my family is the prayer on my heart. Save my friends. Save that person I shared the gospel with. Father, you do your work because I can't do anything aside from your power. But all things are possible with you, God. There is not one single person who is beyond the grace of God in your life. So let's be the church. And let's love that one. And let's love that few. And let's love that many. Because what's amazing about this power is that there's nothing beyond the ability of God. But notice this. And what is more, this, this commentator says, says the writer, this inexpressible power is at work within us. That's what he says. To him. Going back to, the, to, going back to that text, it says, it says, now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask. He kind got of got off on a little rabbit trail saying, To him, this, this one who's able to do all this stuff. And then he brings us back center focus in verse 21. To him be glory in the church. That's us. You want to give glory to God? Well, if you love me, keep my commandments. Be obedient. That's good. You want to, you want to bring glory to God? God is, God is glorified in our unity. That, that, that coming together and to have that unity that we have through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, that unity that bonds us because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not talking about some makeshift unity that just says, hi from a distance. It's the idea that we are unified in the blood of Christ. That unity needs to, needs to be the paramount thing in our relationships. So when all those things seek to distract us from that unity, we can say, no, 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 we can't do that can't do that. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, to him be glory in the church. But how are we supposed to do that? By Christ Jesus. It's through Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we're supposed to do this, notice this, to all generations. That means this generation, certainly means past, but it means this generation, the one that we're in, and all the subsequent ones. Until when? Until when? Until he returns. And at that point, it'll be forever and ever. And then there's this little word at the end here, amen. As I was doing my reading, it was brought to my attention that the doxologies all end in amen. Even when we sang it, and we're not singing it today, but even when we sang it, we we finished it with amen. This is a word of affirmation. You want to affirm something in today's upside-down world? affirm the power of God on display through the church. Through Christ. It's going to transcend every nation, tongue and every generation and it's going to extend forever and ever and all God's people gave affirmation by saying Amen. Amen. Can you amen this? God's power is on display through us. Can we say amen through the way we live our life? We can say it here in this room. Amen, pastor, right? It's a lost art, but some of you still, you you try from time to time, right? Amen. Can we say amen with our life? Because when God's power is on display through us, through his church, he is glorified. The glory of God is seen through his church. That's you and me living a life that honors him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how it has been revealed to us through your power. Father, I thank you that you have exercised your plan, not only of salvation, but of consummation. Salvation for us to come into right relationship with you, to have our sins forgiven, to to be declared righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ who took all of our sins upon him at the cross. Lord, thank you for that power demonstrated through the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection, through his ascension, and ultimately through his coming again. Father, we thank you for putting your power on display. Father, as we recognize our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow children of yours, we pray, Father, and I pray it would be a corporate prayer, We pray that you would use us to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ until he returns. Help us to recognize, Father, it's not in our own strength we get any of this done. It's through your power. It's through your might working in and through us. Lord, humble us in all the ways that I've tried to to enter into this, this, this text today. Humble us so that we respond in faith and respond in awe of who you are and what you're doing. Father, we desire to be that church that glorifies you. And the primary way we do that is when we allow your power to be seen in our lives. May we appreciate your power. May we tell others about your power. May me glorify you because of what you've done and what you will do. May you be glorified in the heart response of both your people and those who need to be your people. And if there's anyone here today that is in need of of a saving relationship with you through what Jesus Christ has done on their behalf, Lord, I pray that you would call them to yourself and that they would pray a prayer of confession and repentance. Lord, forgive me for all the sins that I have committed against you. I recognize that Jesus Christ died in my place on that cross and that he was buried and rose again on the third day, demonstrating his power over sin and death and that all who come to faith in him in this life will have life eternal. I pray, Lord, that someone would pray that prayer today to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.